Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Well, two weeks ago now, we began a study in a letter that we call Ephesians. And uh, what we learned a couple of weeks ago is that uh, when Paul is penning this letter um, that, that we call Ephesians, he's under house arrest. What had happened up until this point, he was, found himself in Jerusalem. He always had plans to go to Jerusalem and actually give a monetary gift to the church in Jerusalem. And now what happened, he did that. He wasn't sure if they'd actually receive it. But you know what? To his pleasure, they actually received it well. But he was actually in amongst um, Jewish people. And you can understand that what he was proclaiming, what he was teaching, didn't go so well with the Jews. So they got him and it was getting pretty hostile. And what would have probably happened is that he probably would have been stoned to death just the same way that Stephen was stoned to death, if you remember that story in the book of Acts. Anyone remember that? Yeah. yeah. So what Paul kind of does, he kind of pulls out his dual citizenship card and he thinks, ah, oh, wait a minute, I'm actually a citizen of Rome as well. So instead of actually the imminent like possible like death of stoning in, in Jerusalem, he actually pulls out his citizenship and says, aha, I need to go to Rome. So he finds himself in Rome, but under house arrest. And he always planned to go to Rome, but he didn't plan on going to Rome and being under house arrest. And he's awaiting an audience with Caesar. Um, and he knows that this is probably going to take a couple of years. And he also knows that this audience with Caesar may well not go too well, if you know anything of Nero and the like. So he's over there and he's waiting, he's under house arrest and he has an opportunity to write some letters. So a few of our letters in the New Testament are actually penned while he's under house arrest. And he's writing to different churches, he's writing to, to, to people, he's writing to his friend called Philemon, we have Philemon there. And he's doing this, but he also has this opportunity which is granted to him. An opportunity to write something that is not restrained, an opportunity to write something that is not constrained by, a, by actually speaking into issues or theological um, circumstances um, that pertain to certain churches or certain individuals. Because as you can understand, he's writing to a church in Colossae and they've got this misunderstanding of who Jesus is. Their Christology is out of whack. They think Jesus is just an angel. So he's writing to correct that. He writes to Philemon because his slaves run away. And he's saying, you need to re receive your slave. Not as a slave, but as a brother. But there's actually this opportunity for him to actually write something grand, something bold, something big. It's an opportunity to write, for him to write to God's people about what he sees as most significant and most important without having the restraints placed on him of an occasional matter. So he writes a manifesto that we call the letter to the Ephesian church. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, our earliest manuscripts don't even have Ephesus. It's to God's holy people. It's a lofty letter. It's an elevated letter. If you read through Paul's letters, you will discover that this is unlike any of his other letters. It is a visionary presentation of who God is, what God has done, what God is doing, what God will continue to do, and what our place is in the midst of that story. This is the story of God presented for all to look at and for all to marvel at. So a couple of weeks ago, I'm just going to do a short recap. A couple of weeks ago, we started off in chapter 1 and we actually saw that Paul is actually outlining God's grand and glorious vision that he had before the foundation of this world. And this grand vision is family. Anyone glad that you're part of God's family? Yeah. A couple of you are. That's good. By the end of this service, maybe all of us will be. <laughs> family. That is the grand vision. 
J.I. Packer actually says that a definition of what is a Christian, which we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, he said, the question can be answered, what is a Christian, in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. Anyone have God as Father here? You bet you do. Are you glad you have God as Father? That's pretty cool, isn't it? So this is grand vision of family, that, that a Christian is anyone who would actually say, God is my father. I mean, if someone called you off the street and said, what do you do? Do you go to church? What's a Christian? That's a pretty easy answer, isn't it? A Christian is anyone who has God as father. And obviously, Paul and the other um, writers of the New Testament got this from Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who gives us a little glimpse. He gives us a glimpse into the character of God as our Heavenly Father. The disciples come to Jesus and say, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And Jesus says this, this is how you should pray. He says, our, you can talk back in church, it is okay. (laughs) Our Father. There's a story of the prodigal son, you remember that? And that story is actually a parable where Jesus gives us a glimpse as to the character of our heavenly father. And if you remember the story, there's this son, the youngest son, takes his inheritance, goes off and wastes it. He is in such a mix and he thinks to himself, you know what, I need to go back and I need to come up with a story to actually uh, maybe my father will accept me as a slave, not a son. So his son comes back, the youngest son, the father sees him in the distance, runs out to him, doesn't even let the son finish the story, right? That's what happens. It's like the father didn't even care. He's like, I don't even care why you went away. I'm just glad that you're home. Isn't that good? That's fantastic. But there's an older son as well, isn't there? And in this parable, the older son, guess what? That's you and that's me. Because that's the way Jesus does parables. It's like a mirror. It's looking up for you and me. And the older son, he's a bit grumpy. Have you ever met grumpy Christian? Has anyone ever been a grumpy Christian? Any grumpy Christians here today? Oh, yeah. (laughs) He's He's a bit grumpy. He's ticked off. He's ticked off. He comes in and he is, there is, there is laughter, there is singing, there is music, there is dancing in the Father's house. Isn't that good to know that in our Father's house there should be music, there should be rejoicing, there should be dancing. What's going on? Your youngest son's come back. He is annoyed. He is ticked off. Heavenly Father, the Father comes out and he says, you need to come in. Older son says, uh-uh, uh-uh. I've been with you for so long. I do everything for you. Heavenly Father says, well, the father in the story, I'm getting a bit mixed up, third service. He says a, a, a sentence that should really, really mess with us. Really, really mess with us. He says to the oldest son, everything I have is yours. Jesus is giving us a glimpse into the character of our heavenly father. And as this heavenly father who says to his son, everything I have is yours, is the same heavenly father that Paul is speaking of when he begins his letter and he says, all praise to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. It is the same heavenly father who takes delight and smiles upon his children when giving them an inheritance. You know you have an inheritance? It's great to have an inheritance. It's almost like we have seemingly stumbled into this inheritance, which is the inheritance, Ephesians 1 verse 10, that God at the right appropriate time, that he is going to bring everything in heaven and earth under the unity of Christ. He is bringing everything back together. We have an inheritance, the brand new renewed creation that is waiting for us, that is to come. That is good to know, isn't it? 
That's great to know. And just in case you and I were like that older son and we look at our Heavenly Father and we doubt His character, we doubt the character of a Heavenly Father who says, everything I have is yours. God thinks about it and says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. So you can actually have a taste of what is to come right now. Isn't that good? That we can actually have a taste. We can actually see some of what is to come right now. And we are to have that taste right now, but not just have a taste. We are to live in such a way that we actually give a demonstration of that to the world around us. And you have to ask the question, why in the world should my life be lived to be a bit of a demonstration? Well, it comes back to the grand vision, that of family. Family. There's this idea of adoption. It's like this picture that that God has written up the adoption papers and he signed his side. And he is just waiting for anyone who will give their consent to be part of this growing, expanding family. God wants to have lots and lots of kids, right? I come from an Anglo-Indian family. Anglo-Indians love having lots of kids. But that is nothing compared to our Heavenly Father. He wants to have lots and lots of sons and lots and lots of daughters. Right? It's getting bigger. So this is the story of God's love. It's the story of his kindness. It's the story of his delight. And get this, it is what God is famous for. It's what God is famous for. Let me ask you a question. If you were to waltz into the city right now, tonight, and if you were to ask a question to anyone on the street, and you ask this question, what do you think God is famous for? What do you think they would say? Well, go down to Armadale. So, you know, what? I'm a Christian. What do you reckon God's famous for? What do you reckon God's reputation is? What do you think you would say? I think that what we would hear from people is very different to what God actually is famous for. Very, very different. The end of, of what we actually read, he says that he did this so we would praise and glorify him, or quite literally that he did this for the praise of his glory. For the praise of his glory. In other words, that we would live in such a way that the world would know what God is famous for. He's famous for his love, for his kindness, his compassion. That's what it is. That's what it means. Pretty big vision, right? Almost unbelievable, you reckon? Pretty extraordinary. Imagine like we can get a taste of like the fullness of what is to come right here, right now. I mean, it's not in fullness, but we can get a taste. We can get a bit of a glimpse. You know, that sounds pretty big, doesn't it? Could you imagine if you could get that in your family? Would that be kind of awesome? Could you imagine in your church? Could you imagine like in any facet in your marriage to get a little bit of a taste, to get a bit of a glimpse? That would be awesome, right? Does that seem a little bit too good to be true? Well, I reckon Paul agrees. Paul agrees. This vision is so extraordinary. This vision is so exceptional. This vision is so grand that it's almost like unbelievable. So Paul kind of says, yeah, I'm with you. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do something because it is big. It is bold. It is like, it is huge. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you. Because there are some things that we simply cannot see unless someone prays. Someone prays. And this is what we started talking about last week. The prayer that Paul actually prays. Ephesians 1 verse 15 to 16. Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly. You see, Paul's not indifferent or uncompassionate to any Christian or any church anywhere in the world because they are his brothers and sisters in the most real sense. They are brothers and sisters by blood. The blood of Christ. So he does what all of us should do in response to having this big grand family. 
He thanks God for his family. He prays constantly for his family because he genuinely loves his family. It's part of the vision, right? And remember last week I was kind of saying, like, there's a, this is a little assessment that will actually let yourself and myself know who we truly love. Who are you praying for? Because we pray for those who we truly love, don't we? So Paul is praying for God's people. And he prays um, two things. He prays two things, that they would know two significant things. And this word know is more than just a head knowledge. It's this personal experiential kind of thing, that they would actually really know this stuff. He prays that God's people would know God better. Anyone want to know God better? Absolutely. I don't want to just know him in my head. I just don't want to know the theology. I want to experience him. I want to talk to him. I want to walk with him. So he prays that God's people would know God better, but he also prays that they would also, and we would also, know God's blessings better. Anyone want to know the blessings of God better? Yeah? Blessings of God better. And then he goes and he unpacks three blessings that God's people, he's praying that God's people will know hope, that we would know hope, real hope. And that's really, really important for us to actually know our hope, to know our hope. Because the way that we see the end shapes the way we behave in the middle. When we started talking, we talked about this last week. Sometimes you can see Christians freaking out, acting all kind of weird and wacky in the middle where we are right now. And sometimes it might just mean we have to come alongside and love them enough so they can get greater clarity as to what is going to happen at the end. Because the way we see the end shapes the way we behave in the middle. Doesn't that make sense? It does. The second thing that he prays is blessing is that we would understand better God's rich inheritance. And previously he's talking about our inheritance, but now we're talking about God's inheritance. What's God's inheritance? Well, he will fully inherit his children. And that's going to mess with us. Because how am I going to treat what God is going to inherit? You might be sitting in a row right now, and at the end of your row, you got someone, and you don't even want to talk to them because you're thinking, they just got my goat. I mean, I, seriously, I just do not like them. They are just the most annoying person I've ever met. But you need to understand, that's God's child. How are you going to treat God's child? That should really mess with us, shouldn't it? We have to be nice. You have to be nice to your pastor. Isn't that good to know? <laughs> God's inheritance. And the next one is God's power, his power. Notice that when we're talking about hope and God's inheritance, that has a future tilt. There is a future tilt when it comes to the Christian life. But when we're talking about the power of God, the resurrection power of God, that is something for right here, right now. And Scripture is actually letting us know that that same resurrection power is available for us today, which is extraordinary. The only hiccup is we need to understand what kind of power this is. Because we live in a world where power looks like sending in the armies. Power looks like, like climbing the ladder. Power looks like cutting other people down so you can be promoted. And what Paul is actually saying, that we need to now actually see God's power through the lens of the cross. This is a sacrificial power. This is a self-giving power. This is a kind of power that you will literally lay down your life for another person. And it is this power that is currently transforming the world. It is this power that actually took a handful of Christians, about 500, who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And a couple of hundred years later, by the time Constantine is risen to be emperor of the Roman Empire, there's up to 60% of the Roman Empire are Christians. Pretty cool power, eh? This is what we kind of have for us. 
So now we're at this next section. That was just a bit of a recap. So if you miss church for two weeks, that's the only time you can do it, okay? (laughs) We're not doing a recap next week, otherwise it's going to keep going on. Our next section of this letter lands us on one of the most important verses in the letter to the Ephesians. And consequently, one of the most important verses for any Christian to understand and to live out. And the question which I really want to ask is, what does it mean to be alive? We sing about, we preach about, we pray about this new life in Christ, but what does it mean to like, be really alive? And why is it that you can meet someone, have you ever met someone and they say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but they are just like grumpy and they're just mopey and they're just like, like beige and like hollow and they just walk around like this and it's like, you know what, I'm a Christian. Why don't you come to the Lord? You can have exactly what I have. Seriously, stay home. Why is it that you can actually see someone full of life and someone is so empty? Well, we need to grapple with what does it mean to be alive? And the verse we're going to land on is Ephesians 2.10. So I'll read it here and then we're going to walk through this section bit by bit to see what Paul's saying to us. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. We're going to see very shortly that everything that we have from God is a gift, that in and of ourselves, we can't do anything. Everything we have is a gift from God. And this verse is letting us know because of what God has done for us, the only appropriate response is to live with and for God in a brand new way. That there should be something of a newness about our lives. That as you look upon my life, as I look upon your life, there should be a distinction between your life and everyone else's life. In fact, when I look at your life, it's almost like you have the breath of God coming through you. There should be something new in your life. Any beige Christians here tonight? Not now, anyway. (laughs) But we want to do that. So I'm going to read this passage of Scripture. And um, like we've been doing uh, for the last couple of weeks, I'm going to really encourage you just to hear it. Um, to resist reading it because this letter was written to be heard. And it's funny, like when you hear things, you actually pick up different things than what you read. Have you ever noticed that? I've been kind of encouraging our churches, that, 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 like even with version, just to go to the book of Ephesians, put in your headphones and press play. It'll only take you about 20 minutes. And hear the letter and you pick up different things. So let me read this in your hearing from verse 1 to 10. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms because we're united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so none of us can boast about it. 
For we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Ten compact verses outlining for us in brutal honesty, and we'll get to that, in absolute brutal honesty, where we've come from and what God has done for us who call Jesus King. We've come from the walking dead to walking in good works, in God's new creation. We have come from death to life. And Paul wants to outline what it means for us to actually have become new, to have new life when we were dead. So we're going to start in verse 1. And Paul starts off this section and he says this, Once you were dead. Isn't that encouraging? Welcome to church. Once you were dead. Anyone feel encouraged? Once you were dead. Once you were dead. Salvation's a messy business. It's a really messy business. But we don't like mess, so we forget how messy things actually were. Have you ever noticed how Christians have a really, really short memory? We have a really, really short memory. Because salvation's really messy. Do you remember how messed up you used to be? Really? Do you? I can't hardly remember how messed up I used to be. Mess, salvation's a really messy business. Paul is reminding us of, once we, of where we once were. And you know what? It is offensively, brutally honest. The problem is our imagination here in 2020 doesn't really allow us to actually picture what Paul is really saying to us. We, we've got this, this idea, but what Paul's actually saying to us is actually quite offensive in our ears and in our sight if we saw it. This morning, um, we didn't have kids around, so I showed this great clip from the Pirates of the Caribbean. And um, it actually portrayed what I believe Paul is actually showing us in this. And I haven't got the video clip, so I'm not going to show that, but I do have a, a, a photo still from, from the scene. So if you could just put it up just for a moment. There we go. You could probably take that down now. I don't want kids to have nightmares. But this is scene where um, the Captain Bulbasa, he's actually there and the moonlight's coming out. Elizabeth Swan's with him, if you know the story. Has anyone watched the Pirates of the Caribbean, by the way? Look at you guys watching the Pirates of the Caribbean coming to church. I can't believe that. Anyway. <laughs> but it's this brilliant scene. And, and so, so, so Captain Bulbasa is over there. Did I say that right, Mitchell? Barbosa, sorry. He's over there. Again, third service. I'm a bit vague. He's over there with Elizabeth Swan, and the moon comes out. The moonlight comes out. And ordinarily in the sunlight, they just look like people, right? But as soon as the moonlight comes, they actually look like that, skeletons. And, and that's kind of what's happening. And it's, it's this brilliant, brilliant scene. And it's possibly the best depiction of what I've seen of what Paul is saying. In fact, this is what the captain actually says to um, Elizabeth Swan. This is what he says. He says, for too long... I've been parched with thirst and unable to quench it. Too long I've been starving to death and haven't died. I feel nothing. Not the wind on my face, nor the spray of the seas, nor the warmth of a woman's flesh. Imagine that, this picture where you feel nothing. Where you're thirsty, but you can't quench your thirst. Where you're hungry, but you can't taste anything. You're out in the sea and you can't even feel the water of the waves coming and splashing you on the face. You feel nothing. And it's in this place. And Paul is painting a similar picture for us. It's like a picture of the living dead. 
Scholars and commentators, they look at this and they say, you know what, if Paul was actually in 2020 right now, he'd probably be using some illustrations that we'd be quite um, used to in the contemporary world. Um, illustrations that Hollywood certainly used to. He'd probably be using language that of zombies. You're kind of like zombies. You're alive, but you're not alive. You're human, but you're not really human. <laughs> you're kind of human. You're kind of alive. See, Paul's not holding back when he says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit of work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Like, just picture that. Now, obviously, I haven't got the movie little clip there, but you can look at it yourself. But just imagine that scene where you're looking at these, these, these crewmen. They're on this ship, and they're like these skeletons. They're walking around, and they are desperately wanting to become human. Now, just have that in mind and contrast that picture with the vision that Paul gives us in chapter 1. This picture of these skeletons running around their ship, not knowing exactly what they're doing. And there's this picture, there's this great grand picture, this family vision that Paul is painting in chapter 1, where he actually says that we're adopted into our Heavenly Father's family. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? Our Father who actually says, everything I have is yours. A Father who has given us every spiritual blessing. A Father who takes pleasure and delight in giving us an incredible inheritance that we can taste right here, right now. And as we're going to show shortly see he's even given us more what a contrast and Paul is saying you need to understand you need to recognize it was not that long ago it was only a couple of years ago even if you're a hundred in the light of eternity it was only a couple of years ago you were dead see salvation is a messy business and we can't forget that we even sing songs about this you know in our nice little neat churches, you know. You called my name and I ran out of that grave. Well, seriously, you ran out of the grave. What do you think you were wearing? A nice suit and like you had deodorant on? And like, seriously, we're talking about graves here. What do you think you're singing about? No, we were once dead. We were once dead. Salvation is a messy business. And we can't forget that. And it's at this point that Paul also starts to unpack what true spiritual warfare is. True spiritual warfare. And he's going to unpack this a little bit later on as well. Have you ever met a spooky pooky Christian? I reckon there are two ditches that you can easily fall into. You can either be a little bit spooky pooky. I don't know any other way to say it. On one side... Or you can put on like we're a modern, western, rational church on the other side and completely deny that we are engaging in spiritual things every single day. But what Paul does, he actually starts to unpack what true spiritual warfare is for those who follow Jesus. Verse 2, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Paul's going to later tell us that our warfare is not against flesh and blood. It's against the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. That's really important for us to understand because there may well be someone and you look at them and you say, you know what, I simply do not like that person. 
And there is division that comes. And there's hurt that comes. And there's offense that comes. But we need to be discerning enough to know that I'm actually not coming against a person. There's actually, many, many times, there's actually something behind that person. And if I'm going to actually wage any kind of warfare, I'm actually going to wage a warfare with the spiritual stuff, not actually that person. Does that make sense? And sometimes the most spiritual thing that you could possibly do is this. Get this. The most spiritual thing that you could possibly do is forgive. Or ask for forgiveness. Isn't that true? Doesn't matter, it is. <laughs> so there are powers at play. There is a spiritual reality at play. There is a commander who is currently at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. There is a blindness that is happening in people. But don't for a minute think that those powers are too powerful. Because we know that they aren't too powerful because, verse 3 says, all of us used to live that way. So these powers, they're powerful, but they're not powerful enough to keep us from receiving newness of life. Isn't that right? Because I have newness of life. So there's some powers at work, but they're not too powerful because I'm now alive in Christ. And if I'm alive in Christ, it was not that long ago I was dead. But seeing that I'm now alive, there must be some hope for others who are currently dead. Does that make sense? Sometimes we might look at a movie like that or we might look at people and we might say, well, they're scary, that's hard, they're angry, I just want to stay away. But if we have in our mind, wait a minute, there is a heart, there is, a, there, there is something at the heart of every single person. People are asking a question right now in 2020 like never before. What does it mean to be truly human? What does it mean to be truly human? They're asking that question. And we need to understand and recognize that there are certainly powers in play, but they're not that powerful because standing here, he came and he got me which has to give hope that he can do it for others as well. So we know this hope. So verse 1 to 3 is depicting this dire situation. I mean, how in the world are you going to do some, anything if you're dead? Commentators think that Paul has in his mind and he's using the structure um, of Ezekiel's vision of dry bones. Imagine dry bones in a valley. Dry bones in and of themselves can do nothing. They can't do anything for themselves, can they? The situation is hopeless. There is immense despair, agony. And it is so alarming that we have absolutely no ability to change anything because dry bones are dead and dead things cannot do anything for themselves. And Paul is letting all of us know that we were the living dead. We were a bunch of those skeletons on that ship. Just trying, wandering around aimlessly, hoping and longing for a way to become human. And it seems absolutely hopeless until you hit verse 4 with two words that change absolutely everything. But God. Is anyone glad that there's a but God? Seriously, you should be a little bit more excited than that. Anyone happy there's a but God? If there's no but God, we are all stuffed. Did you know that? We have no hope whatsoever, but there is a but God. These two words changed everything. In fact, these two words still change everything. And these two words will continue to change everything. 
You know what? We sing songs and we know our, our frailty and we may not necessarily be living in the complete freedom of God or know the full love of God right here, right now, but God. Oh, you didn't get that one, did you? Okay, you listened to the podcast. But God, there is still a but God for today. Your situation looks a little bit hopeless. Well, there's still a but God. That mountain looks huge. There's still a but God. That Goliath still taunting you. There's still a but God. There really is. I think sometimes we, we really doubt and we really find it hard to believe the promises of God when he says, you know what, there is wholeness in me. And sometimes we can see those things and we know there's wholeness, there's shalom, there's peace in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But it's so difficult to believe that. But God, he can still work the miraculous. He can still do the impossible. He can still make dead things come to life. Anyway, I'm enjoying myself with that anyway. We were dead, but God. We were in bondage, but God. It was hopeless, but God. Well, who is this God? This God is our Heavenly Father. He's our Heavenly Father. He's the same Father that said, everything I have is yours. The same Heavenly Father who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And by this point, we should be becoming a little bit more familiar with His character as we read in verse 4, but God... Who's rich in mercy. That sounds like my heavenly father, doesn't it? Because I'm becoming more familiar with his character. But God is rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. See, God intervened. If God didn't intervene, we'd still be in that hopeless state of living, but still being dead. And why did God reach out to save us when we were dead, when we were lost? It's because of his great love. And if you remember, this is what he's famous for. This is what he's famous for. This is the same God who revealed his character to Moses, Exodus 34. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out Yahweh, Yahweh, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive inequity, rebellion, and sin. It's the same God who is still famous for in 1 John 4, verse 9 to 10. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. This is God's reputation. This is what he's famous for. In fact, this is what he will be famous for, for ages and 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 ages to come. Verse 6 to 7. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. Pay attention to verse 7. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. My goodness. For ages to come, he's still going to be famous for his love, his compassion, his kindness. You know, in a billion years, we might be rocking up and all that, and the Heavenly Father might look at us and look at Mitchell and say, look at that guy, look at that guy, look at that guy, look at that guy. I'm famous for what I did in his life. In a billion years, ages and ages, this is what God is famous for. This is what it means to live for the praise of his 
glory, a really old word, glory, what he's famous for, his reputation. This is what he's going to be famous for. What he's going to be famous for. But back to um, verse 4 and 5. I'm getting ahead of myself. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. Even though we were dead, he gave us life. He gave us life. Remember a couple of years ago, um, my father-in-law um, surprised Jackson. Um, and what he did, he did this from scratch. He built a go-kart, a really, really cool go-kart. Um, it was extraordinary. Um, he actually built it from scratch. He obviously is really, really good at building things. I don't even know how to use a hammer, but my father-in-law knows how to do this stuff. And it was like this electric thing, and it was just intricate. It was beautiful. It was magnificent. The detail on it, like seriously, like seriously, Dad must have a lot of time because this would have taken forever to do. And he brought it, and he brings it to Jackson, and, and obviously we've got a car park here, so he's driving it in a car park and, and all that. And you should have seen Jackson's face. It was like, oh, he was beaming, he was excited. It was, it was amazing, right? And, and at that moment, all of the attention seemed to be on Jackson. You know, Jackson, look at your go-kart. That's amazing, isn't it? But if you think about it, the attention was actually misplaced. It was really misplaced. Because Jackson just received this incredible gift. The gift really didn't say anything of Jackson other than his willingness to share it with his sister. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? No, 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 no. That extraordinary gift said everything of the giver, not the receiver. Isn't that right? I think so often we misplace our attention when we receive things. You may think I'm being completely arrogant, but the Lord has given me Beautiful gifts, exceptional gifts. He's given you exceptional gifts, by the way. He has. You might think, oh, Dave, you're a bit like, seriously, we have this false humility sometimes. He's, and I pray to God that you're blessed with the gifts that God's entrusted into my care. But, but please, please do not make the mistake that those gifts say anything of me. They don't. Those gifts say everything of my generous, beautiful, gracious Heavenly Father. Isn't that right? If it says anything of me, it would be my willingness to pour and to serve with those gifts. You know? That's what it will. That's why, like, in my mind, in my mind say, like, if God has given me these amazing gifts, I don't care where I am, I'm going to be generous with them. I'll be in Kalamunda, I'll be in New Spring, you know, I might be in Youth Care, I might be in All to One. It doesn't matter. Wherever I am, I'm going to try to be as generous as I can with those gifts because those gifts don't say anything about me. They say everything about him, don't they? And if he's been so generous to me, I want to be generous with the gifts that he's given me in the first place. Does that make sense? But actually, the attention should be on the giver, not on the receiver. And we've been given exceptional gifts. There is no more exceptional gift possible than that of life. That says something remarkable of our Heavenly Father. It doesn't say too much really about me. It doesn't say too much about my life really. I don't really think that there are good little Christian like people walking around. That might upset you. 
What I do believe is that there are redeemed sons and daughters of a loving, generous Heavenly Father. Because I know me. You don't really know me. I know me. I have to live with me every single day. I know my vulnerabilities. I know my weaknesses. I know the thoughts that go through my head. Seriously, if you knew the weaknesses and vulnerabilities of Dave Ryder, you would say, why in the world would anyone ask him to lead anything? I'm so aware of that in my own life. And to be honest, many, many times I think I'm the biggest imposter. And I just look to my Father in heaven and I say, thank you so much. That even though I'm so weak, I'm so frail, I'm so fragile, I'm so vulnerable, still you look upon me and still you would dare to use me in this world? Oh, my goodness. You see, the gifts and the graces that God gives us says everything about him. The only thing it says about us is our generosity and willingness to pour that into the lives of others. To become truly alive is an incredible gift. But there's actually more with God. He just keeps on giving. Verse 6 says this. He raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. We're seated with Christ. That's absolutely extraordinary. We've already seen in a previous chapter that Christ was raised from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of the Father where he is now, has all authority, and he is currently executing and administrating that authority, and we are seated with him right now. That's crazy, isn't it? Does that seem a little bit too hard to believe? Wow. It seems like maybe we need someone to be praying for us so we can see the things that seem to be too hard to actually fathom and believe. But we're seated with Christ. And Christ is executing his power, which is literally transforming the cosmos right here, right now. This is real love. It just keeps on giving and giving and giving and giving. We have a heavenly father who says, everything I have is yours. Every spiritual blessing is yours. You can even sit with Jesus and you can have access to the same kind of power that raised him from the dead. And once again, Paul's letting us know that we have access to that same power at our disposal. But the only hitch again is it's a different kind of power. It has to be seen through the lens of the cross. And then he lets us know that we're going to need this kind of power. And this is where we're landing. The worship team can come up. I'm about to end. Ephesians 2 verse 10 For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Once we were dead men and dead women walking around this place and now we are made anew into his masterpiece. Isn't it nice to know you're a masterpiece? We're his own poem. We're his symphony with beauty and wonder. What a contrast between the living dead. What a contrast between just all like, like not fully human. What a contrast between like being a bunch of skeletons on a, on a ship, not fully alive, desperately wanting to be alive. And now, because of what God has done, we are a masterpiece. There is beauty, there's wonder, there is mystery in the way that God has formed us and the way that God has made us anew. So we can do good things that he planned for us long ago. In other words, because of what God has done, it's time to get to work. 
or to use language that we've been using over those last couple of months. It's time for the kings and queens to march again. But we march differently now because we're thankful people. Anyone thankful? I mean, if you like knew that you were dead and now you're alive, wouldn't you be a little bit thankful? Not only are we thankful, but we're a rejoicing people now. We are rejoicing people. I remember hearing about Cicero in the Roman Empire and he was disgusted with the slaves who were following Jesus Christ. Because what he saw is that they were actually just being tormented and oppressed. In fact, there were so many slaves, they really had to oppress them. Otherwise, they would have overtaken the empire. So they're oppressed and they're being tormented and they're being punished. Yet these slaves who profess Jesus as king, they are still rejoicing. They are still praising God. They are still thanking God. And people around are looking at them saying, who are these people? They are the people who literally changed the Roman Empire. Because they got a handle on resurrection power. A different kind of power that changes the world. We're rejoicing people. And we're a generous people. We're generous people. Because I understand and recognize every single gift that I have says nothing of me. It says everything of him. Everything about him. He is a good God. He's a generous God. He lavishly bestows and pours out upon my life. And because He is so generous in what He has given me, I want to be generous with what He has given me to every single person I can. I want to pour out as much as I can, no matter where I am. I don't want to hold anything back. I don't want to fall into the lie of thinking if I pour too much out, I'm not going to have enough left in the tank because I understand if I pour everything out, He's going to pour more into my life and it's going to come out and it's going to refresh this land and it's going to bring about new creation in this world and lives are going to be flourishing. I march differently. We march differently. Kings and queens march differently because we are made new. We are God's masterpiece. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. I was dead. But now I'm alive. And it makes sense that if I'm made new into a masterpiece so that I walk in these good works, if I am not walking in these new works, you are not living in your new life. So here's the question. Have you stopped doing the good works that God has prepared for you to do? When becoming new. Well, you're made new so that you would walk in these good works. And the moment we pause and step back, and the moment We're confronting a person face to face and we do not recognise that behind that person are powers and principalities and that's what I should really be addressing. But no, I'm addressing a person and now I have offence. Now I have unforgiveness. Now I have betrayal. Now I have hurt and I take a step back. When I am not walking in those good works, I am not walking in this new life. You see how that works? So my encouragement is for us as a beautiful, wonderful church of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter what location we're in. I seriously wish we could take down every single church sign and just say, we're the church of Jesus. My encouragement is that we as a church of Jesus Christ, 
if we have stopped doing those good works, that we will get up and that we would walk in them again. Because what Paul is saying is that once we were dead men walking and dead women walking, but now because of the gift that's given to us through Jesus Christ, we are now walking in the good works of new creation that God has prepared in advance for us to walk in. Let me pray for you. I'm going to worship. Thank you, Lord. Father, thank you for your scripture. And I pray that there have been moments that have been articulate enough for your word to be engrafted into our hearts. Holy Spirit, would you come this coming week and weeks and months and would you remind us of the things you want to teach us so that we would be shaped and fashioned more into the image of our beautiful Jesus and that we would see more of thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that we would march as kings and queens in this world pushing out your good new creation. Would we be a church that's not intimidated but is moved with compassion and love? And would we literally see that intersection of heaven and earth become more of a reality, your kingdom breaking in and breaking through into this world, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.